Hello, and welcome to the KE Report. Chad and Corey here talking to Justin Hoon, founder and editor of Uranium Insider. And Justin is probably one of the most prolific guys out there in the public space talking about the uranium sector, the nuclear fuel sector. And Justin, it's always great to get you on the show just to get an update on the sector that's been shining in the resource sector when a lot of things are stagnant. So it's fun to talk about the uranium equities, which we will get to later in this call. But I want to start off with the supply demand side of things, and in particular, where the supply is going to come from. You know, we've seen a big increase in the uranium price in the spot market. We've seen term contracts starting to be signed at higher prices. But the question still remains, based on all the demand, where is the supply going to come from? And let's maybe just start with the big three, Justin, the Kazakhstan producer, Kazataprom, Cameco, the biggest North American producer in Canada, and Arano, the big French producer. How is it looking on the supply side from these guys? It's looking at least mildly constrained pretty much across the board. All of these entities are gearing up to increase production. It just takes time. The incentive price is certainly there for these producers, and it has been there for a very long time, to be completely honest, for Kazataprom and their joint ventures, which they have joint ventures with both Arano and with Cameco as well. Cameco just reported their Q4, and they missed production on Cigar Lake. The primary reason for that was upgrades at the mill, McLean Lake Mill, and automations that they've been implementing over the past, let's say, six to eight months at that mill. So that'll that'll certainly improve in 2024 over 2023. There aren't major fundamental problems at that mine. I think the, the company's just trying to implement some automations that are going to improve efficiencies going forward and probably are going to be helpful when it comes to getting into uh, Cigar Lake Extension or the phase two of that mine, which they did talk about in the call as well. So they're aiming to actually get that into production going out over the next, let's say, three to five years, kind of late decade. And that phase two of Cigar Lake, from my understanding, from mining engineers that we've contacted in the past, is that it's it's a bit more difficult mining uh, compared to the phase one of Cigar Lake that's been producing for the past 15 to 20 years. So there's a bit more lower grades, a little bit more complex geochemistry, but they'll still be able to do a decent amount of production there. Will they be able to produce the nameplate of 18 million that they've been producing? Generally speaking, not really sure. We're just going to have to see about that. The other thing they mentioned is that they plan to increase production out of MacArthur River. MacArthur River has at least 10 years to go on that mine, if not more. It's a monstrous mine. That uh, nameplate capacity for that mill associated with MacArthur River is 25 million pounds a year. I believe they will reach that, but it's also going to take multiple years and a decent amount of CapEx, which by the way, they mentioned Cigar Lake Phase 2 is two to 300 million of investment to get that going. So they plan on increasing investments to increase increasing production. And as far as I can tell, that's about as bullish of a signal as you can possibly see. You know, mine shutdowns are bearer signals. And of course, they help turn the market kind of at the bottom 16 to, you know, 2016 to 2018, 19 with the Rabbit Lake closure with Paladins, Langer Heinrich going on care and maintenance, MacArthur River going on care and maintenance. Those are all very bearish signals and they certainly help to mark the bottom of the market. Now, when you see producers like Cameco saying, hey, we're going to spend $300 million to get into the next phase of this mine and we're talking about expanding production MacArthur, they can see where the market is heading. It's We've got a multiple, multi-year supply deficit with no end in sight, really, regardless of what supply comes online. And they plan to contract into that deficit with very, very high prices. So happy to see that because Adam Prom is a little bit more complex and a little bit more nuanced with 
a little bit less clear messaging coming from the company than you would get from Cameco, for example. So they missed their production for 2023 pretty substantially, and they downgraded their production for 2024. So 2023, when they revised their guidance down, they hit that number, just 21,000 tons and some change, about 56 million pounds of uranium. But going forward, they expected their guidance for 2024 back in September was that they were going to go 25 and a half thousand tons for 2024. They revised that down or they signaled to the market in January that they were unlikely to hit that target. And then they revised down those actual targets to barely above last year's production. The primary issue that the company is highlighting is shortages of sulfuric acid, which is the, that's the lixivient, the reagent that they use to inject into the ore body to extract uranium. And the company itself produces 680,000 tons a year. They consume about 2.2 million tons a year. So the rest has to do with other in-country production and imports. And the imports have been difficult even coming from Russia. Russia has other priorities at the moment. And the country itself of Kazakhstan, my understanding is that they're quite concerned about food inflation. And the primary usage of sulfuric acid is for the production of fertilizer. So that gets priority as far as sulfuric acid production goes. So it's been difficult for the company to get sufficient sulfuric acid to not only maintain production levels from all of their existing deposits, which all of them are ISR. And if you know anything about ISR, you have to continuously develop well fields because the ore that is held within the well field is extracted relatively quickly. You have a ramp up period of about 12 months from the time the well field is, is drilled out and established and, and injected with the lixivient and you start extraction, you've got 12 months roughly from initial production from the well field being established. Then you get peak production in 18 months and from there it declines. So you have to constantly drill out. And if you're not drilling out a lot of well fields, you have to increase the amount of acid in order to extract the same amount of uranium in a depleting well field. So that's what we've seen last year. In addition, and I'll, this will be my last point with the Kazan problem. In addition, their primary production increase is going to come from the Budenovskoy 6 and 7 deposit. That's a joint venture with Russia. Rosatom owns 49% of this deposit. It's a very large deposit. My understanding is that it's quite deep. It potentially has higher levels of carbonates than some of their other deposits, which basically means it requires more acid and on a ton per ton basis. And this is just slower going for them to get developed than they had expected. So that's the primary increase in their production is coming from that. That's like 70% of their production increase is coming from this one mine. And all of that production is going to Russia for the first five years of its, of its production. So it's not any sort of savior to the West, this increase that they will eventually get. They are building another sulfuric acid plant that will have an 800,000 ton per year capacity. They just got the permit to build that in January. They're saying that will be operational in 2026. I think that's a pretty optimistic target, but to be honest, they have every incentive to get that going as quickly as possible at these prices. So we'll just have to see. As far as we can tell, we're not going to see any meaningful increase in production out of Kazakhstan until 2027, probably at the earliest. Are there any smaller companies or non, let's call them major producers, especially out of the US that you have your eye on that could at least feed into some of that demand? Yeah, the, the gears are definitely turning in terms of supply responding. It's just not enough and not quickly enough to balance the market, but the, we are seeing new supply come in. Encore Energy just started producing. 
from one of their Texas assets. They're bringing another Texas asset online. Peninsula is moving towards production. They still need to secure um, a processing facility in Wyoming. UR Energy is producing a little bit of uranium. Energy Fuels is announcing that they're going to be turning on the White Mesa uranium circuit at their mill. Um, UEC is moving towards production. How soon they'll be producing, I'm not really sure. This year, potentially, probably next year, a little bit of production out of Texas and then Wyoming. And then Cameco has some pretty good assets in Wyoming and Nebraska and the United States. And they'll likely bring those into production, although they have not officially announced that. I still think that's probably a few years away before they do. Those are their quote-unquote tier two assets. So starting to see some response. I think we'll see a million and a half pounds out of the United States this year, maybe two, two and a half next year. So it's starting to happen. And those pounds will largely be sold into established contracts with a little bit, little bit of spot market selling. But Certainly not enough production to actually get anywhere near satisfying the demand in this market, but it's starting to happen, yes. Well, Justin, let's talk a little bit about the contracting cycle, because a lot of investors look at the spot market, and it's a good indication of what's happening and where the demand is in the sector, but really things come down to companies creating longer-term offtake contracts with utility companies, and we've started to see that. Just circling back to the Cameco call that they had, some people were shocked that some of the contracts they signed were at lower prices than where spot is now, but some of the other contracts they're working on have a lot higher ceiling. Some of them we've got rumor of up to 120, 130 in price. So there is going to be a range of contracts signed in this period. How are you looking at the lay of the land in the contracting cycle? And what does that mean longer term for companies that are locking in supply for years here at better prices? Well, longer term, it's it's clearly a net positive for anybody that's signing contracts right now that's going to be getting into production. Contracts are necessary for, for producing companies and for most developing companies, especially those that are planning on producing a decent amount of uranium. Largely, they have to de-risk on the financial side of things during development. Oftentimes, bankers are unwilling to lend and issue debt for the development of a uranium-producing asset unless and until they have a certain amount of their forward production contracted and or equity financing done through equity. So all of those things sort of have to happen. And generally speaking, contracts are how nuclear utilities source their uranium. So it's a common practice and it's something that all of the producing companies are doing right now. They're signing very, very high priced contracts. And the terms of those contracts have changed a lot over the years. Now we're seeing entirely market reference contracts with floors and ceilings. I'm hearing that those ceilings are getting quite high you know, 20, 30, 40% above where we're seeing the spot price currently right now. I even started to hear that we're potentially going to see some contracts with no ceilings at all. It's purely a seller's market right now. 100% a seller's market. The tables have totally turned. Five years ago, it was still very much a buyer's market. And the terms of those contracts were uh, at least partially, if not majority, fixed price. Um, that's significantly lower prices. And so the utilities that are receiving deliveries on those old contracts they're electing to flex up and, and receive more material under the under the allowance of these contracts. And that has tightened things quite a bit for current producers, especially those that are a little bit uh, struggling on the, on the production side. One of those companies would be Arano out of France. They just reported their Q4 today and their production out of Somer, which in Niger typically is north of 5 million pounds a year. Last year, they produced a little over 2 million pounds. And part of that has to do with, obviously, the coup that happened in July. Things got complicated for them immediately after that coup. They stopped producing at the mine in November. And as far as we can understand, that 
continues to be the case. Yes, they still have employees. Yes, they're still pulling ore out of the ground, but they're having trouble getting both reagents into the country and exporting uranium out of the country. So that's impacted them. And they have plenty of, of contracts on the books as well, just like uh, Uranium One and Cameco and Kazanaprom and and plenty of other entities. So the contract market is is heating up. Last year, we had 162 million pounds signed officially. There probably was closer to 180 to 190 million pounds in total. Not all of it gets reported. A big chunk of that was from both the Chinese and Energo Atom in, um, in Ukraine. We had big contracts signed with Cameco in the beginning of last year. So we're expecting another pretty big year in contracting. Although we do think right now, we have this kind of stalemate happening in the market right now. There's there's a lot of discussion about term contracts. The spot market is very, very quiet right now. And that often happens after a big jump up in price where you have the whole sector go, okay, that escalated quickly. Let's take a breather here and see exactly what's going on. So we jumped really quickly from 90 bucks a pound up to 106. Then it pulled right back down to 100 bucks and buyers stepped in, jumped back up to 106, pulled right back down to 103, 102, or right around that level. And buyers are stepping in with a few dollars in pullback in the spot price. But the sector, especially the utilities, are kind of sitting back and saying, okay, what really is going on here? Where really is this headed? And is this going to pass? And they have plenty of reason to expect that it could simply based on historical precedent even near-term precedent. So if you go back 2021, September, October, November, we had a big jump in spot price, about a $15 or $20 jump that was largely driven by financial entities, primarily this project's uranium trust. Then what happened? It pulled right back down. Yes, a slightly higher low, but it still pulled back significantly. And it certainly didn't trigger a, a spate of term contracting because of a three-month spike in the price driven by spot. Happened again in March and April of 2022. And again, it pulled back down. If we go back even further, we go back to 2000, 2007, that price spike from 80 to 90 bucks up to 135, it came right back down almost as fast as it went up. And only a few utilities contracted at that point north of $100 a pound. So they have plenty of reason to think, well, okay, that just spiked it. We went from 50 bucks to 100 bucks in five months. Maybe this is going to pull right back down. So the utilities are pretty quiet right now. That is going to change, and it's going to change this year. Why? Because this price spike was not driven by SPUT or financials, generally speaking. Are they participating? Yes, they are. Are they the primary driver? No, they're not. Everybody is on the buy side, and anyone holding any excess inventory is hanging on to it right now. Very, very tight. There's no reason to aggressively sell into this market if you believe we are in a sustained high price environment. We could be $150. Or, or higher by the end of the year. That's entirely possible. Everybody knows it. And utilities are the slowest to come to terms with the present market dynamics. Luckily, we actually have the UXCs and the trade techs of the world who are communicating with their clientele that is primarily nuclear utilities. You guys, this time it actually is different. I know those are scary words to say, but don't expect the price to come down. All of the pressure that they can see on the horizon is going to be the upside. So we expect this year we're going to see multiple utilities step up, potentially some large utilities, and say, hey, we're going to bite the bullet. We've got a contract here because we need these pounds. There's one thing a nuclear utility cannot do that is not fuel their reactor. They don't like higher prices. I'm not going to be the one saying it doesn't matter at all to them. Of course it does. But really, to put it very, very simply, utilities buy 
when they need to buy at whatever price the market is dictating. And that's pretty much how they operate. Look, this clearly is a bull market right now. So it, it does beg the question, because as you said, the pricing market is so opaque. Has this simply turned into almost a story sector here where as much as we analyze supply and demand, fact of the matter is higher prices sometimes lead to higher prices. And as you said, if the utilities get squeezed and they just need to sign these contracts, that can be almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. So in terms of major price drivers, don't we need to even just understand it's not just supply and demand right now? It's, I mean, primarily, the primary story is supply and demand. It's a little bit of a boring story at this point, but I think that's okay. It's, it's something that everybody knows if you spend a little bit of time investigating this sector. Supply and demand is the primary reason why we are going to see pressure underneath the price of uranium. It's even with all of the mines coming online that we expect will in the next three, four, five years, we still are not going to be meeting annual demand that is projected, right? So, and it's pretty easy to project demand going out, you know, on a five-year time frame. You can look at all the existing reactors. You can make a prediction on which ones will get shut down or which ones will get life extensions. And then you can look at the reactors under construction when they're expected to hit the grid. So the demand is relatively easy to the model. Then you get to the supply side and we look at every single project. Let's look at uh, Cigar Lake. They shut down for six months during COVID. They were able to get back up to 18, but they're having problems. Will it improve? Yes, but we knew that phase one was going to be diminishing towards the end of the decade. Perhaps that's already started. Not really sure. MacArthur River was off a little bit last year. The Kazakhs, these are the folks that the entire industry was expecting could, quote, just turn on the taps, unquote, when prices got high enough. Clearly, that is not the case. Look at Niger. There was a coup. It's impacting Irana's production. It's slowing down the development of Global Atomics DOSA mine. I mean, everywhere you look, there's still at least minor supply chain problems. If you're able to get material, it's a little bit slower and it's more expensive than it was just a few years ago. Um, not quite as bad as during COVID, but still far worse than it was in 2018-19. And supply is just having problems. I'll give you another example. The Uzbeks. The Uzbeks was another development and production story where the market expected they would absolutely hit their targets. And what were their targets? to double production by 2030. They've made that statement last year. They are currently producing eight to 10 million pounds of uranium per year. They're kind of considered as the quote, Kazakhstan light, unquote. They just announced a couple of weeks back, they're not going to be able to hit that target. They're revising it down to increase production by 50% by 2030 instead of 100%. Why? They are finding more and more higher carbonates in their deposits. This is the same thing that we believe is going to make the Budinovskoy 6 and 7 for Kazatomprom and Rosatom a little bit more difficult and then needing more acid. Across the board, there's just no supply savior. So yes, to answer your question, the supply and demand story is the story. But there is kind of this romantic element to this story as well. We've seen such an incredible 180 on public sentiment for nuclear. It's shocking to see. I, I can't even believe what I'm seeing some days because Going back to when I started looking at this sector, it was so hated. The uranium price was so low. People had lost money for the last five or six years in the market, and it was just considered dead and forgotten. And that was the contrarian bet at the time, right? Well, we never expected to see a full-on nuclear renaissance, to see nuclear at the table at the COP conferences, to see 24 countries pledging to triple nuclear by 2050. 
to see South Korea flip, to see the United States de-risk their fleet through the IRA, uh, to see on-time, on-budget reactors built in the UAE. Yes, they already started construction at the time, but amazing how fast they did it. To see China raise their targets. Now they're shooting for 150 gigawatts by 2035. That's another 95 reactors in the next 10 years in China. It's a full-on nuclear renaissance. The environmental left is embracing nuclear so in, in many ways, it's kind of a feel-good investment as well. And there's a lot of romanticism around it. And that kind of makes it fun. But underlying all of it is a very boring supply and demand story. It's it's relatively easy to model out. Once you see it, then you can have very high confidence that we're going to see continued pressure under the price. Well, Justin, with all these dynamics in place on the supply-demand side and the nuclear renaissance romanticism that you just mentioned, where many nations have flipped their perspective on nuclear energy and realize it needs to be part of the mix. It's a very bullish story, and it has been for a while. But let's take things over to the equities, just because we're running low on time here. And I want to make sure we have time to talk about the stocks that people are investing in. And I know you do a great job over at Uranium Insider with your subscribers. And also, even when you put out videos on YouTube, I'd encourage people to check those out when Justin just talks and looks at the charts. You do a pretty good job on the technical analysis, Justin, but I know that's not your only thing. You're looking at the fundamentals, you're looking at momentum, but really you made a great point recently in another interview, and I'd love you to highlight that, that as far as the stocks go, the uranium stocks, when you see what's going on in ETF inflows, when you see what's going on with institutions getting positioned, they're not really looking at the charts. They're not really looking at price to earnings. They're looking at liquidity. So maybe make that point about the uranium stocks and liquidity. Institutions, for sure. Liquidity is number one priority. It's paramount. It's absolutely necessary. You can't take a meaningful position in something that has insufficient liquidity, period, the end. We talk to the funds, the specialist funds pretty frequently that do have decent exposure to this sector. And they, of course, talk to all sorts of generalist funds. So kind of through these conversations, we get a better understanding of where institutions are at. And, and basically, if an institution is interested in the story, they get it. The price is going higher, demand is robust, supply is in question, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff I just mentioned, and they want to position, they do not sit down and go company over company looking at discounted cash flow analysis and trying to find the cheapest ones. They literally pull up their Bloomberg terminal and they find the top five most liquid stocks in the uranium sector, and that's what they buy. And that's it. That's the entire story for institutional positioning in this sector. Passive flows coming from ETFs, coming from the passive indexes are moving the stocks. And that's always been the story in the sector and it always will be the story. Yes, we will have individual, let's say, exploration companies that happen to make a good intercept during a bull market and will outperform than just looking at passive index flows coming from the ETFs. We will have those stories. We've already seen them. There's huge differences in performance, if you go back on a five-year time period, we have some uranium stocks that are actually down in that time period. We have plenty of stocks that were darlings five years ago that have been flat, or maybe they're up 50%. And we have stocks that have gone up 10x or more in that same time period. So they're all over the map. But as far as the big flows and the institutional positioning, it's liquidity only. And we can actually see evidence of this over the past, especially over the past 18 to 24 months, We've seen a pretty significant outperformance of the large caps. And in our estimation, that is quote unquote smart money positioning largely prior to retail. We had a pretty good retail frenzy from December 2020 through November 2021. That certainly got some retail on board, especially with the Sprott story 
coming out and, and equities going kind of nuts. But since the, the sector kind of languished, consolidated after those moves, the next leg has been largely driven by institutional positioning. And that's why we've seen such a big outperformance of this Profisk Uranium Trust, of Cameco, of NextGen, and of a, of a small handful of other large cap uranium stocks. And we believe that we're starting to see evidence that that is shifting, not necessarily the institutions are selling or that that money is slowing down, but the retail is getting the story and they're kind of playing catch up. We're seeing, for example, the URNJ, the Sprott Uranium Junior Miners Index, start to outperform Cameco by a significant margin. That's sort of an indicator of, let's say, small and mid cap explorer developer companies starting to outperform the larger cap stocks. And we think that's what's going to continue to happen in these next couple of legs in this market. All right. So Justin, what are you doing within your portfolio? Are you starting to take some profits? Are you reallocating? Can you give us just some insights then on how you're managing this environment? We haven't taken profits based on the movement of the sector at all. We are still uh, almost 100% long. We have a small amount of cash positioned. We've got a little bit of leverage through some option positions, but we largely have the portfolio that we had, you know, let's say six or eight months ago. We've made some small adjustments. We have traded in and out of stock. So in that way, we have taken profits on a number of trades over the years. Right now, we're at about 490% return since August of 2019. So we've had a really good really good run of it, especially over the past six or eight months. It's been quite nice. We're staying long here, you guys. Uh, we're, we're staying long. We're not repositioning very much. So we're not yet anywhere near where we expect to be taking profits based on sector signals. Those sector signals are going to be very, very important to watch. Primarily, that's going to be the action in the physical market. When we start to see entities step up and liquidate pounds in the market, that'll be primarily coming from, let's say, individual hedge funds that hold uranium, usually they're going to be the first movers on getting out early. We're going to want to see those signals. Right now, what we're seeing is the absolute is the actual opposite of that. We're seeing hedge funds and financial entities be buyers on the margin in the, in the physical market. Last year, we saw typical entities that were sellers in the spot market, not in big volumes, but you know the Russians, Uranium One used to be a decent seller in the spot market. Certain Chinese entities were, were selling small amounts of uranium in the spot market, you know, 2020, 21, 22. And last year, that utterly reversed. We had absolutely everybody that used to be sellers turned to buyers. And the only sellers in the spot market right now are primarily traders that have offtakes coming from primary producers. And they get those offtakes every single month. So they have month over month liquidity in a rising price environment. They're profitable basically every month. And that's the primary liquidity in the spot market. And it's not a lot. So everybody's holding tight on their pounds. And that's what we're watching for more than anything is to see when we start to see a shift in the physical market, when we see liquidity come into the physical market, that's going to be a big signal for us. And we haven't seen one shred of evidence of that happening. Everybody is on the buy side and or holding on to the pounds that they hold. So no, we haven't taken profits yet on a from a sector perspective. Yes, we've taken profits in, in trades over the years. But we don't do a lot of trading. Primarily, we stay long our focusless portfolio, which has uh, done very well for us over the years. All right, Justin, staying long, staying strong in the uranium sector. We'll wrap it up there. But it's great to have you on just to get an update on this whole sector, the nuclear fuel side of it, the supply demand side in the market with the contractors and utilities, and then also how we're doing in the uranium equities. Sounds like a pretty bullish setup. We'll keep following along, and I'm sure we'll have you back on just to get an update in the near future. 
If people like getting Justin's thoughts, definitely check out Uranium Insider. We'll put a link to that down below this interview. He does a great job showcasing the uranium sector. And Justin, we really appreciate you coming on the KE Report and looking forward to our next conversation. Always great to talk to you guys. Thanks so much for having me on again.